podcast this week, we have more guests. Melchiades Estrada had burials. We've got Antoine Fuqua, director of Emancipation, and the film that will be number one on 2032's Sight and Sound's greatest movies of all time list, The Equalizer 3. Plus, Rebecca Hall returns to the pod to discuss new horror film, Resurrection. We talk to the silent twin stars Letitia Wright and Tamara Lawrence, and if that weren't enough, we assimilate Toy Story 3 and Coco director and brand new author of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, Lee Unkrich, into the pod team. All that and more on the movie podcast that used to scoff at films which contained that horrible cliche where the busy dad missed his daughter's school play because of work, but... Here we are, folks. Here we are. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. Don't worry, there will be another performance of Little Drinking Games School Play tomorrow morning, and I will be there. Unless, of course, I get caught up in the edit, but what can you do? Anyway, welcome to the Empire Podcast this week, joined once again by three colleagues of such lethal cunning. Geek Queen Helen O'Hara is here. Hello. Hello, Helen. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yes, I'm feeling very Christmassy nowadays. Excellent. Yeah, it's, 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 good, it's a good time to feel Christmassy in the run-up to Christmas. Indeed. We're also joined by the most Christmassy of things, our very own Grinch, our great big fucking nerd, James Dyer. God bless us, everyone. How are you, sir? I'm very good. I'm good, good, good. filled with the spirit. It's actually, it was really, really strange thing. I was, I was up quite late last night editing Pilot TV podcast, and uh, this strange, strange guy came to the door. He was chains and all sorts of shit, and he talked me through some key moments of my life, and I feel a lot better for it. So it's, uh, it's been nice. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. for everything. Yeah. he looks a lot like Ollie Richards. <laughs> it probably was Ollie Richards. He's <laughs> he's he's very busy these days. Uh, but we are also joined in the ever-evolving fourth chair by another brand new special guest, temporary member of the team. You know him as the director of Toy Story Three and Coco, and one of the founding fathers. I think it's fair to say of Pixar animation. He, he, he shrugged and nodded a little bit. You are, you are, Lee. And uh, now he is the the author, the co-author of an incredible three-volume series of books published by Tashin about the making of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. It is Lee Unkrich, the world's number one The Shining fan. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's really great to be here. And I'll apologize in advance if I sound a little croaky. I'm just getting over being pretty sick. Yeah. But I'm, I'm raring to go here. All work and no play makes Lee a <laughs> sick boy. Let's get right into it right from the off. You are here to launch this incredible book. I'm only part of the way through. I may have to take the rest of the year off to, <laughs> to read the rest of it about The Shining. And it's fairly well known, I think, that you are a huge fan of Kubrick's The Shining. Yeah, that's kind of gotten out there, interestingly. Mm -hmm. I'm surprised how many people are aware. You haven't hid your light under a bushel, Lee. (laughs) Well, you know, the Hollywood Reporter recently called me the world's uh, biggest shining aficionado, I think they said. Okay. Um, So I I proudly wear that. Um, Yeah, I think at this point, it's fair to say that I know more about The Shining than any living person. I, I probably don't know as much as Stanley Kubrick did, but as Stanley is sadly no longer with us, I'll take that mantle. What was your The Shining origin story? I first saw The Shining when I was 12 years old. Wow. My mom took me to see it in the theater when it came out in 1980. And uh, a seed was kind of planted in me um, that immediately started to grow. And it kind of, I don't know, it wormed its way into my psyche. And uh, that fascination just grew and grew over the decades. I've often thought about why I've been so obsessed with the film. And thinking back now, I think that 
I, I really related to the film in an odd way because I was an only child and my parents uh, were in the midst of a kind of very uh, dysfunctional marriage. Mm -hmm. um, and I also spent a lot of time alone and had a very vivid imagination. And I was often very afraid of my house and things in my house. And so I think when I saw The Shining, it just spoke to me subconsciously. I think that's why it wormed its way in. But The Shining also proved to be the film that ignited my interest in becoming a filmmaker. Uh, because once I saw The Shining and, and became obsessed with it, I then wanted to see what else the director had made. And so that blossomed into seeing Stanley's other films and, and grew into a general uh, love of film. I, I really think it was the first time that I watched a film and didn't see it just as entertainment, but really was aware of the, the hands of an artist and the, the mind of an artist behind the film. In terms of your filmmaking career, how was The Shining directly informed your work? I mean, it, honestly, it has wormed its way into some of my yeah. films. I mean, in a blatant way, because I, I always got a kick out of hiding uh, Easter eggs uh, in my films from The Shining. And there, there are quite a few in um, Toy Story 3 and Coco. There are other Shining references in some of our earlier films that people assume uh, were because of me, but they actually weren't. Uh, in the original Toy Story, uh, the villain, Sid, his carpeting in his house yep. is mm -hmm. reminiscent of the the, the famous um, carpeting in the Overlook. Uh, but that was actually done by Ralph Eggleston, who was the production designer on that film before I even joined the film. And then there's a moment in uh, uh, Finding Nemo when Bruce the shark kind of busts his way through a door and says, here's Brucey, um, which again, people think was me, but it was not. Even though I co-directed the film, that was something that Andrew Stanton uh, came up with. But everything in Toy Story 3 and Coco certainly were my, my references. Um, but from an artistic standpoint, I mean, my sensibilities were shaped in in large part by uh, my you know memories of The Shining and how it affected me. So there have been things throughout my films that uh, that are directly connected. You know, Stanley's use of music and sound effects, sound mm -hmm. design to elicit kind of unsettling feelings have been something that I've tapped into. Um, there's a moment in uh, Finding Nemo where Dory and Marlin are about to venture into a mysterious trench. Mm -hmm. And uh, we wanted it to feel very creepy and like a place they didn't want to go into. And so I talked to Tom Newman, the composer, and asked him, uh, well, I talked to him about this, this sound that I had heard in The Shining. It was this kind of eerie plucking kind of sound. And he said, oh, that's called, and I, I, I um, apologize to any musicians if I say this wrong, I think it's called Kalinga, uh, but it's a technique where the musicians actually take their bows, uh, the violin players, and they tap them against mm -hmm. the strings. Mm -hmm. And apparently they don't like to do it because it's not good for their, uh, for their bows, but they do it if they're asked to. And so Tom wrote that into that moment in the film. Um, so for everyone watching Finding Nemo now, when you see that moment and you hear those kind of creepy sounds, that's definitely directly influenced by uh, Kubrick. But just from a compositional standpoint, um, just mm -hmm. some of my sensibilities, uh, you know, they I don't think about it actively often. Sometimes I do, but it's just really become part of my filmmaking DNA, I guess. Do you think you would feel the same way about this film if you had seen it for the first time as an adult? Do you know what I mean? Because I sometimes think when you watch films during your formative years, they slip in under all of your preconceptions, all of the things that you build on top of it as an adult, and they affect you on a very primal emotional level. They become part of your DNA. They affect your whole like fabric of who you are. Yeah, and I think that's why. So, mm. no. I mean, I, it's hard for me to imagine seeing it in any other context than when I saw it. But... uh yeah, absolutely. Um, 
And I think that's why I've, you know, spent the last 40 odd years being obsessed by the film because it was right at a very kind of transformative moment in my mm-hmm. life. Yeah. And uh, to the point where you have you have uh, co-written this book with the late great J.W. Rinsler uh, as well. Well, Can you tell us about the book? When did it begin for you? Because I went back through my emails recently to to kind of see how long it had been. Well, what happened was um, when I was uh, making Toy Story three, I think it was during those years that I first heard that the Kubrick estate had donated uh, all of his archives to the London College of Communications and had set up the Kubrick archive. And so when I came over to do press for Toy Story three, I planned into my trip a few extra days and uh, made arrangements to visit the Kubrick archive and um, spent three days just kind of pouring through the holdings having to do with The Shining. And it was at that moment that I thought, maybe there's a book here. Because a lot of things have been written about The Shining over the years, but they mostly Mm -hmm. are interpretations, analysis. There's plenty of that, as we all know, but there's very little actually written about the making of the film. Mm. Um, And what is out there, I found on the internet, is mostly wrong. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff that's been greatly exaggerated and is just plain wrong. My son, Max, uh, whenever he sees a like a top 10 list of facts about The Shining, he likes to read it to me because he knows how angry it will make me (laughs) because there's so much wrong in them. Um, So I... So... When I first reached out to the Kubrick estate, to Jan Harlan specifically, it was in 2012, so just over... 10 years ago now. That was really the beginning of the process. And interestingly, when I reached out and said I was interested in doing a book, he said, oh, well, that's great. We're very interested. The problem is we've been approached by someone else who's interested in doing a book on The Shining. (laughs) And I thought, oh, gosh, what are the odds of that? But I said, well, I don't know. Put me in touch with whoever these people are, and uh, maybe it can be a collaboration or something. And it turned out to be uh, J.W. Rinsler, whose name is actually Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, as it turned out, very oddly and fortuitously, he lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, which mm-hmm. is where I live and where Pixar is. And so I invited Jonathan to Pixar and we had lunch and we really hit it off. And uh, it became clear that we had a, a great partnership in the works because I'm not an author. I hadn't written any books, mm-hmm. but I had a wealth of knowledge about the film. I had a lot of contacts. Um, I had a lot of uh, research that I'd gathered. Um, Jonathan is a great writer. He'd written a number of um, great uh, making of books mm-hmm. during his years that he was with Lucasfilm. But he didn't really have much in the way of research. He was just kind of at the beginning. So we uh, we held hands and we decided to create this together. So I essentially commissioned uh, Jonathan to write the text uh, for the book, which he then began doing over the course of the next several years. I did the bulk of the interviews, but Jonathan did some as well. And uh, he had the the gargantuan task of sifting through all of this research and all of these interviews and start and uh, kind of put it into a shape that that was manageable. Um, and he kind of followed kind of the the structure that he had on his previous making of books, which is to essentially do an almost day-by-day account of the making mm-hmm. of the films based on the the production records that 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 exist in terms of what was shot each and every day. So did you learn a lot from doing this? I mean, you know, there must have been things that you had You'd obviously done a huge amount of reading already, but there must have been things that came up that you had never heard before that people had maybe never talked about before. Oh, totally. Mm. Totally. Um, yeah, there are things that are in this book that nobody has seen uh, beyond a handful of people. Wow. Um, my fascination with learning more about the making of the film really began right after I saw the film. I bought the, the, the paperback edition of Stephen King's novel, and it was the movie tie-in 
right. um, with Saul Bass's logo on the front in yellow and black. Uh, and in the middle of the book were a bunch of black and white stills from the movie. Right. And I would look at them and look at them. And I, I don't remember when, but at some point it occurred to me that one of the stills, which was a still of Shelley Duvall uh, in a bathrobe cooking breakfast in the Overlook's kitchen, I realized I, I don't think that's in the movie. And then when wow. the film came out okay. on video and I watched it, it was confirmed. No, that wasn't in the movie. So the gears in my head started going thinking, wow, were there scenes shot for The Shining that aren't in The Shining? And so even as a young person, like through high school, I was on a quest to try to find a screenplay so that I could see what of The Shining existed outside the bounds of the finished film. And I couldn't find anything. The only screenplay that was out there in the world was... Uh, what's called a post-production screenplay, which is basically a transcription mm. of the finished mm. film. Um, so I really had, I had next to nothing for many, many years. So I had to, you know, I, I, I would, I would dig out the original music and listen to it. I just did what I could to kind of surround myself with the film, but it really wasn't until I had access to the archives, um, after, uh, after Toy Story 3 that I, that this whole world bloomed open of, of early drafts of the screenplays and production stills I'd never seen and, uh, and all the many scenes that Stanley shot that are not in the finished film. Wow. What's the scene that you most wanted to learn something about? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, well, of course, I, you know, I, I was fascinated with the, the slow motion shot of the blood coming out of the elevators mm -hmm. and how they did that. And I was lucky enough to speak with Alan Wibley, who was a, a, a special effects guy on the movie. And he kind of talked me through exactly what was involved in creating that um, fascinating story. And, and Leon Vitale, uh, Stanley's mm -hmm. assistant, who sadly just passed away a few months ago, mm -hmm. um, he had a great story about actually shooting uh, that scene where wherein they they set up the shot and they had multiple cameras and different people manning those cameras and they were kind of enclosed in these protective boxes but they had never rehearsed this this was like a, a one and done kind of situation hmm. um so they just had to like cross their fingers and and hope that it would work um and stanley apparently as leon tells the story was so nervous about it that he couldn't bear to be in the room when they released the blood so he actually left the room and had leon uh, basically call action <laughs> and uh and they did it and it was brilliant and um uh, i think leon says something it's in the book it says something like stanley came back in the room and 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 leon was just so proud of him and saying what what a wonderful boy that you you thought up this amazing thing and and here we've just <laughs> executed it brilliantly we have listener questions on this show, Lee. Uh, so it's Christmas. We're, what is it now? December 8th, something like that. It was 17 days from Christmas. So we're beginning to lean heavily into the Christmas questions. And we have a good one here from John O'Forwood on Twitter at WTFPL101. It's a catchy Twitter handle, but there you go. Uh, best song from a Christmas film. Lee Unkrich, film historian. Oh, I have to go first? Uh you don't have to go first. But I'm just I'm, put, I'm putting you on notice. Uh, hmm. Well, I mean, I tend to be. I have a twisted part of myself, so I tend to like strange uses of Christmas songs in films mm -hmm. as counterpoint. But I, nothing's coming to mind right now. But I do have the sentimental, emotional part of me as well. So I, I guess I'll say, "Have yourself a merry little Christmas" oh. from Meet mm -hmm. Me in St. Louis, yes. just because it's. Uh, it's it, it, it's just such a quiet, sentimental, almost heartbreaking use mm -hmm. of a Christmas song that kind of speaks to, you know, a longing to be with 
friends and family members during the holidays. And, you know, I, I think it's the best song Judy Garland ever recorded for a film. I can't think of anything better or more famous. So, yeah, I think that's pretty much it, right? It's definitely top two. Well, it's in the top five. two. It's in the top two. Yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, Hell's Bells, what about you? Um, uh, this is well, right up your street. Okay, so yes, White Christmas. Obviously, we can, we have to mention White Christmas. Originally from, which, from, from, from which film? Well, it originally came from Holiday Inn, and then they used it again in White Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to say it's from White Christmas, because Holiday Inn has blackface in it, which we don't mm-hmm. like. So so yes, White Christmas from White Christmas. Um, what's this from The Nightmare Before Christmas? <laughs> um, uh, and... I mean, I mean, you know, there's quite a lot of them. There's loads. Yeah, there's tons. Like, like Elf. You know, they're not maybe the world's greatest singers. They're not Bing Crosby or Judy Garland. But there's a lot of kind of genuine emotion in those songs. Though Zoe Deschanel is a really great she singer. She is actually a great singer. You're right. But yeah. Will Ferrell, with, with the greatest of respect to him, <laughs> is she and him not. Christmas album is really good. It's really good. It's, it's on my really rotation. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm, uh, you know, so, so I feel like, like, I, I'm not sure if those are like record, records in the same way. They're not on as many Christmas playlists, but they are still a really good use of a Christmas song in a Christmas movie. And I know you're going to want to mention National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Of course I am. There we are. There it is. Damn straight. Yes. Mavis Staples, uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Christmas Vacation is the name of the song uh, from that. I Yeah, I love that. That film and that song unreservedly, and that, uh, that was also where I was introduced to Bing Crosby's "Meli Kalikimaka," oh, which song. is, of course, you know how you say "Merry Christmas" in Hawaii. Uh, one day I'll try that out. One day I'll get to Hawaii on Christmas Day, say "Meli Kalikimaka," and probably get punched in the face because it's actually probably really insulting to people. And Bing just kept it under his hat. Uh, but yeah, I love those those two songs. Uh, anything from um, "Up at Christmas Carol," of course, is Obviously. also a belter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, one I I love. Christmas Please Come Home by Darlene Love uh, from the beginning of of Gremlins and a couple of years ago now around about this time of year my wife and I were lucky enough to go to New York just before Christmas and we we paid on our Friday last night there we saw Darlene Love in concert uh, December 21st in New York at BB Kings and it was absolutely incredible she did that she did Marshmallow World you know she did some other stuff as well and it was just amazing. Gremlins being the most twisted Christmas movie ever. There you go. There's counterpoint yeah. for you, Lee. There's, <laughs> there's counterpoint. I mean, that 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 film's incredible. And that, and it, it just starts with that. And it's one of the most Christmassy things ever. It also has uh, Johnny Mathis's Do You See What I See, which is a really, really earnest Christmas song with uh, religious overtones. Uh, but it's used to very, very creepy effect in the scene where... Zach Galligan's mum finds the gremlin in the kitchen and then ends up microwaving him. So that's a good one. Yeah, sweet Christmas songs used for action scenes, I think is always yeah. is always a good thing. There's, there's a good example of that, which I won't spoil, in Violent Night Ooh. this year. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, th- that was a great example. That's what I was trying to think of. I was trying to think of the Christmas equivalent of using Singing in the Rain in A Clockwork Orange. <laughs> and I think Gremlins kind of probably gremlins does that. <laughs> yeah. It's there. Um, and you know it's Christmas once it happens. <laughs> once those chords strike up, you are in Christmas. Jimbo. The greatest Christmas song ever written was, of course, a little number by Ludwig van Beethoven called Ode to Joy oh, from the movie Die Hard. <laughs> and I think we can all agree that that is the winner in this particular category <laughs> if we discount Christmas is All Around by Billy Mack. I think we absolutely discount <laughs> Christmas is All Around for one. Um, even going Die Hard, didn't you go for the obvious song in Die Hard? No. 
Absolutely not. Okay. Why not? No, it's it's, there's something about Ode to Joy. Whenever I hear it, it just feels Christmassy to me. I I don't know what it's it's Pavlovian. It's just, it comes to me. I just, it it makes me feel all festive. Hey. (laughs) Very good. Uh, It does. It really does. Like, it it really gets me. It gets me in that that Christmassy way. Oh, that's nice. So, not Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow by Fallen Monroe. No. No. Even rhymes? No. Not that one. The other one is that I do really like is, and I can't remember the name, but Helen, you'll probably know this. Is it Carol of the Bells? It's the yes. one, it's the the creepy kind of omen-esque Christmas song that plays at the end of the Noel episode of The West Wing. Because remember, he walks past the, the they're outside the White it House. It does. It's also it. quite famously used in Home Alone because it's the John Williams arrangement of mm. the Carol of the Bells, which tends to be the one that you hear most. But it's scary as fuck, but also Christmassy. Yeah. It's a nice, <laughs> nice balance. Mm. Uh, well, listen, Lee, we're going to let you go uh, off into London to let the voice rest ahead of your, your launch today and tomorrow with the Kubrick Estate. Yeah, tonight yourself. I'm doing an event at the BFI, um, screening The Shining and, and talking and showing some images. going to be showing some uh, some images, some stills that and, and really no one other than a handful of people have ever seen. And uh, yes, tomorrow we have a, a big kind of launch event out at Chittickbury, uh, Stanley Kubrick's estate. Uh, a bunch of his family will be there, his wife, Christiana. Um, daughter, uh, Catherine, um, and a bunch of other folks. And, uh, I'm really excited. I just held the finished books for the first time yesterday morning. Um, and so it's thrilling for me now for the very first time to be sharing it with people and letting them kind of leaf through it as well. It's, it's, it's a big honor. Tashin did an amazing job with this book. I think the set of three volumes weighs something like 42 and a half pounds. I don't know what Whoa. that is in kilos, but like it's, 20. it's very substantial. And, uh, and, and the other thing I'm I'm really grateful for is that they let me do a very text-heavy book. I wanted to create the definitive making of The Shining. Mm. And so that volume, which is the the text volume, which also includes an enormous number of pictures, is around 900 pages long. Um, wow. And Tashin's never published a book like that before, and I'm, I'm grateful that they agreed to do it. That's amazing. That is amazing. Well, I cannot wait to to read, uh, to have the whole thing sitting on my lap, and then I just won't be able to move. I don't think you can hold it in your lap. I think no. you have to have it on a coffee table. <laughs> you have to have three different people to have it on their laps, yes. spread it out. I can't wait to see that. Uh, Lee Unkrich, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so now Lee Unkrich has gone. Remember him. <laughs> and... Uh, let's have a couple more Christmas questions. Sure. Uh, so, Chris Le Poidevin. On Twitter, what's the best Christmas movie and why is it The Muppet Christmas Carol? It's not The Muppet Christmas Carol. Oh, God, here we go. What is it, James? It's Love Actually. No, it's uh, obviously Die Hard. But if we discount Die Hard for the sake of Helen's continuing sanity. Discount Die Hard. No, it's Otherwise, not like, is... again, I don't object to Die Hard being a Christmas Because it's boring. Movie. No, because it's boring. This I know you don't object to it. You just think it's boring. Yeah. I know. I know. I know. I know yeah. that's the reason why. Helen, what's the best Christmas movie ever made? Best Christmas movie. I mean, like, I'm going to be really boring and say it's a wonderful life. Here's the thing I don't like that film. Here's the thing. I'm, I'm not I mean, surprised. It's wrong. it's a black and white. You're you're, yeah. Probably, yeah. <laughs> you're like, what is this? Colorize. If they colorized there, it, you there would is love it. actually a colorized version. That's part of the reason for its popularity. Really? Uh, the reason it became the Christmas movie is because it, um, due to apparently an error of paperwork or something, at one point fell out of copyright. So all the U- US TV channels could just run it as much as they wanted, and they really did. So it became the Christmas movie because people just grew up seeing it over and over again every Christmas. Interesting. And it was a colorized version for a long time. You can get hold of that colorized version. I don't recommend it, but mm-hmm. you can. Um, but it's, look, it is a great movie because it has incredibly relatable problems in it, frankly. It's a guy who has all these big dreams and hopes, but he also 
cares about people and he's a he's a decent person. And so he keeps putting one by one those big dreams and big hopes aside to help those around him. And he and he, you know, at a certain point things go wrong and then he gets really bitter because every you know he's like I've done all this for the universe where's my reward and basically the universe comes along and tells him no you know it's a wonderful life you're you're doing okay you have a lot to live for you have a lot to be thankful for all the stuff you gave up maybe wasn't as important as you thought it's a really good christmas message it's a beautiful film and the sort of the sugariness and the sweetness of the christmas stuff works perfectly because of the darkness and the weight and the emotional reality of the rest of the movie, and it's what that's what a lot of the Christmas movies get wrong. But it's it's a it's a wonderful film. Does it though, for example, get that message across across quite as economically and dare I say, you know, cleverly as Love Actually? I would say no. Oh God, economically, <laughs> Love Actually, economical. How many of those do you get per pound? My well, God, I, I think it's a very economical film. You get how many how many different narratives do you get for the price of one? Well, about like 17, to, you know, thirds of a narrative. I mean, it... Oh. For the cost of one cinema ticket, Helen, that's economics. <sighs> it's so we did, a, we did a spoiler special. Did we do a spoiler special last year for Christmas Vacation where I talked to Jeremiah S. Chechik? I'm pretty sure we did. We did. And uh, I think, was it the year before we did one without Richard Curtis, but we did a spoiler special for Love Actually, but just, you know, Jesus Christ. Did you uh, see that he confirmed recently what uh, Kira Knightley's character's job was? He had a... Presumably she was still in school. No, she was, yes, 18, but she was playing 23. And in his mind, she had had time to, to you know, establish herself as a, as a successful interior designer. <laughs> so the bit where you see her on the phone to Andrew Lincoln, there are swatches behind her. So that's your right. sign that she's an interior designer. At 23, two years out of college, successful interior hey, designer. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. How, how old was Paul McCartney when he wrote yesterday? Okay, but like, mm -hmm. I mean, I just feel like it's not 100% likely. Anyway, it was How old basically... was Beethoven when he wrote Ode to Joy? Uh, when he love saw Beethoven. When he saw Joy Dave and he thought, Beethoven. oh, I've got to write a, an ode to her. That's amazing. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> to think I missed my daughter's Christmas play for this. <laughs> You're seeing it tomorrow. I am seeing it tomorrow. Uh, I thought I might watch Die Hard instead. We'll see. Uh, if you want to have your question read out in the Empire Podcast and treat it with the respect it deserves, we have a bunch of Christmas questions, but, uh, but you know, you, you, can, you can keep them coming in. Keep them coming in. Uh, then you can get in touch with us via one method and one method only at the moment, and that is just hiring an airplane to uh, have a big old question dragged behind it and fly it past London and hope that I see it. And uh, that's the way we're going. No, it's still Twitter. Twitter is still standing like Elton John. And uh, so send in your questions to Twitter and I will see it and judge it accordingly. All right, so we've already had Lee on Should We have another guest. It's a jam-packed show. Should we have, who should we have? We've got the Silent Twin stars, Letitia Wright and Tamara Lawrence. Or we have Rebecca Hall. I want to hear have, from Rebecca Hall. You want to hear from Rebecca Hall? Yes. All right. You say that, except you will never listen to this episode and you will never listen to the interview. That is accurate. And therefore, you're not going to listen to Rebecca Hall. But okay, <laughs> I, will, I will give you Rebecca Hall. You have asked for Rebecca Hall and I will give you Rebecca Hall. Rebecca Hall. Here's Rebecca Hall. No, Rebecca Hall. She is the star of, it's very interesting, Rebecca Hall's career. Obviously, she's got lots of amazing credits under her um, wing, arm, 
belt belt that's it under her under her under her, under her belt clothing. Uh, she's got many many incredible credits under her belt like sort of you know Christopher Nolan's The Prestige and our, our beloved Iron Man 3 of course one of the greatest Christmas movies of all time <laughs> and she does all these big movies like Kong vs. Godzilla and whatnot. And then she does these really weird esoteric deeply fucked up horror movies also uh, like last week's guest Nick Murphy you know The Awakening she did The Awakening she did The Night House David Bruckner's The Night House and now she is the star of a film called Resurrection which is out this week on digital uh, which is uh, you'll hear it in the interview but yes deeply deeply effed in the head and uh, is quite something really really quite something she plays a a high-flying career woman who I don't want to give too much away but uh, something someone from her past resurfaces and hints at terrible things that may or may not have happened in her past, and um, things go askew from there. Askew and askance. There we go. Psychological horror with a little bit of grue thrown in, just for good measure. And uh, she lives in New York these days, Rebecca Hall, and that's where she was when I spoke to her on Zoom just the other day. There's a little bit of overlap, so sometimes one of us will cut out because the other one is speaking. But otherwise, this was a really fun interview. So do please enjoy Rebecca Hall. We are delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the Star of Resurrection, Rebecca Hall. How are you? I am very well. Thank you. How are you? I'm not too bad. Not too bad. Whereabouts in the world are you at the moment? I am in New York State, not City. But I, I, I said uh, I said Resurrection, obviously, and that's the title of the movie, but uh, it, it could honestly be called Bloody Hell, the film, because... <laughs> <laughs> not that bloody. Yeah. No, no, but the, 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 the it's blood generally is, bloody hell. The sentiment works yeah, precisely. It's it's mostly metaphorical of blood, but there is blood. There is blood. <laughs> uh, but it is it's one hell of a movie, uh, and I I don't know how much you knew about it when you were first given the script because my reaction watching the film was every five minutes bloody hell, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was no, the same for you? I, I well, exactly. You've sort of said it. I mean, I I didn't know anything about it when I got the script. It so, just came in an email. Like you've been offered the role of Margaret. Please find enclosed resurrection. That's it. Directed by and written by Andrew Siemens. Please read for your consideration. Okay, fine. Oh, well, you didn't tell me it was going to be that. <laughs> <laughs> so, at what point it's did come you? With morning. Yeah. They, they should come with a warning. They should come with a warning. But uh, at what point did you know what the movie was going to be? And at what point do you know, as an actor, that you're going to take a role? Well, look, there was there were there were three sort of significant points, I think, with this movie. The, the first was, I thought the scenes with the Margaret and her intern were really interesting. So I was my interest was sort of piqued by this sort of interesting dynamic between this woman who was clearly very capable yet somehow controlling and yes there's this sort of dynamic she's having with her daughter who's about to leave home and everything that comes with that and the sort of helicopter parenting in extremis or whatever Mm -hmm. but then there's also this this you know in the first 20 pages or so you've got this relationship with her intern that's a little bit savory um you know, like, uh, please tell me all your problems. I'm gonna, I'm gonna help you, but also a little bit 
um, egotistical because she, it's sort of coupled with, tell me I'm doing good. Are you doing the right thing? You've got to do this and controlling. So I thought, what's going on here? She's she's a bit of a complicated person. And then, then you hit the, the, the seven-minute monologue, and I thought, well, that's defying all the laws of movies and doesn't make any sense, and you can't just jam in three pages of exposition and rely on your actor for seven minutes to deliver it all and very intense exposition as well. So I was like, okay, well, that's piqued my interest number two. Uh-huh. And then, of course, there was the ending, which goes even further with defying all the laws of movie making, and it was a real joy dropping bloody hell what the fuck are you talking about this can't be real no one can pull this off um galling sort of audacity audacity why can't i speak today audacity and people in new york probably say audacity they probably do that so yeah it's fine you know, I've like within between having an American mother and living half my life in England and half my life in America, my I don't I don't know what my dialect is. I say some very strange things. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was it it really became a sort of combination of all these sort of surprising elements coupled with, you know, I, sometimes I think that the good scripts or the things that kind of chime have that combination of the surprising stuff, but also the stuff that feels incredibly familiar. And there are certain tropes in it and that feel almost classical, like in sort of Greek mythology, kind of classical, you know, this sort of lioness heroine figure. Um, and I think it was that that really that really got me. And I was curious to see if if he could pull it off, which sounds so perverted and counterintuitive because i really believed that he couldn't i kind of believed that the film wouldn't work and that's almost why i did it i mean that's so bloody hell isn't it really i mean it's so bloody hell isn't it it is really bloody hell it's just so bloody hell uh so um but but he but he did i mean and and i i felt that i was in really safe hands uh with with uh him as a director from the credits from the credits yeah I know so, what you mean. So bold, so confident, yeah. so unlike. I mean, the movie is is being uh, told, sold, and marketed, and, and touted as a as a horror film. Um, but it, it it's, it's so not completely really. not yes. that. <laughs> and yeah. those credits alone are just you know, immediately you're thinking, okay, this is this is a guy who knows what he's doing. Yeah. Which is, is that something you found in, in your conversations with him? When, when you, you, I imagine you were perversely rooting for him to fail at every, at every, at every juncture. I mean, I mean, yeah, a little bit. No, I, but by the time I was signed on, then I was perversely, you know, rooting for him to succeed, but I still didn't quite believe that he could. I was like, I just don't know how you're going to do this. And I'm so interested. Um, but I felt very confident in him actually from the moment I met with him he he's so you know he's he's so, he had such a very specific vision and it's such a specific understanding of what he wanted the film to do and he kept talking about how he really wanted to even though it has this sort of almost mythological quality to it in its sort of surreal elements that he wanted to ground it so completely in a kind of reality and I I knew that would work, I think, in my gut. So I was like, okay, I trust you. You know what you're doing. You, mm. you know how to how to make it happen. Uh, so so what was your way into into the character then? What was your way into into Margaret? Well, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. 
just guessed. Really just every day, you just guessed. I don't know. I think I, I think so much of the, the the acting work that work that chimes for me is um, very instinctive, and I I you know people are always like, what did you do? How did you prepare? And I I do prepare. Like I work very hard as an actor prior to the actual filming, but I don't I don't prepare in the ways that some people think you know I, I, people have it probably sounds completely mad to you but people have genuinely asked me questions like do you stand in front of a mirror and like practice your you know your intonations and how you're going to say every line precisely and I'm like no no never have I ever I've got no idea what I'm going to do when I walk onto the set I think about the person and so I think about I thought a lot about Margaret I thought a lot about you know how she ends up, how she ends up, like what's happened to her and all that kind of thing. And, you know, I really learned my lines very well. Um, and I sort of chart what happens to my characters during the course of a film so I can kind of have some sense of continuity or emotional sort of th- through line, I guess. And, but I don't really have any idea what I'm going to do until I'm doing it. <laughs> and does it change depending on the size of the movie as well? You know, you, you, you know, you've 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 had your Godzilla and Kong experience. You've had your Iron Man three experience. You've had your your experiences yeah. in, the, in the, with movies of that size. Movie of this size, do, does it does it change? I mean, there's the, the famous Martin Scorsese quotes about about working in Marvel movies. But in my experience, talking to people who've worked in the likes of the MCU or things like that, that you know, yes, there's a fair amount of running around and throwing yourself in front of green screens. Mm. But a character is a character is a character, and the process is the same. The process is exactly the same, by and large. It's exactly the same. It doesn't change. I mean, the things that change are the sort of external factors. You know, you've got a bigger trailer. Or you have a trailer, period. <laughs> you know, better snacks. It's not... <laughs> the actual work is the same. It's always going to be the same. Yeah. Did you? I'm guessing you didn't have a trailer on Resurrection then? No, 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 no trailer. No, and it's it's kind of perverted, really, because sometimes when you're, you know, the resurrection was such a big ask, you know, it was like constant. And on one level, I'm very relieved. It only took 20 days to shoot or however long it took. Um, and another level, it's insane, like having to do those scenes back to back to back and having to sort of s- sort of stay at that pitch of anxiety is exhausting. And then to have nowhere to go to sit down afterwards was kind of crazy when you think back on it. And it's never that. It's always the and it's on the jobs where you don't have to do that kind of thing. And you're, you're you know, you're doing one scene and it's mostly staring at a tennis ball next to a blue screen and <laughs> you know that they're mostly going to be on the monsters and they're not really on you and then you're in the lap of luxury <laughs> you know then you've got a three-course meal at lunchtime and a bed to go and have a nap on <laughs> and an assistant bringing you water and which type of water would you like miss hall yeah which kind of water would you like yeah no. we had nick murphy on mm. Our podcast. He was a he was our, our guest in the studio yesterday with uh, with Damien Lewis. Um, yesterday. Oh, nice. All yeah. right, because he's yes. He's got a, he's yeah. got a new TV show coming out, and uh, you know, and uh, I met Nick on the set of The Awakening all those right. years ago, right. and I know this movie isn't a horror film per se, but it is interesting that you have had The Awakening in on your CV. Yeah. You've had The Night House. Yeah. on your CV as well. And, you know, I just wonder if that is something that you gravitate towards naturally. 
I mean, it's funny because I'm not, I'm not uh, a diehard horror fan. Like I don't watch every horror film that comes out. I really don't. In fact, I'm kind of a wimp when it comes to these things. And, and, and neither am I a particularly, um, intense sort of heavy person so I I don't know why I keep gravitating towards these I think it's a combination of factors I think it's I think it's the fact that I I have a a strong drive to really be used as an actor and push myself and often the scripts that that are more in the realm of horror or psychological thriller they they do put you through your paces just by the nature of everything being an extreme. Um, and I think also I'm sort of, I'm probably, it's, it's probably my way of metabolizing my own anxiety and getting it out at work so I can, don't have to deal with it in life. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, so you don't come home, people go bloody hell. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah, I get a space for it, you know. I get a space to act out all my worst fears. It's it's good. <laughs> it's interesting because the last time we spoke was for uh, on this podcast was for passing, and passing. You know, I thought the film was tremendous, and but it 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 also at times has the it it has the veneer of of horror almost in a way. It has this you know this really claustrophobic and really uncomfortable at times and incredibly tense. Also, mm. was that something that you were that you were thinking of also. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I think one of my greatest fears in life is the idea that my reality could be destabilized by the influence of someone else or the world at large. You know, that my truth suddenly that I have held mm. absolute or real or tangible, or whatever, suddenly becomes utterly not to be trusted, that I can't trust myself, I can't trust my perception, and that's altered by someone else's influence. I find that idea really frightening and somehow very potent right now. Um, And I think that, I think all of these films that I've gravitated towards, including Passing, really hold that idea, Um, that idea of, of... influence and destabilizing and and having your own reality threatened or even yourself being the perpetrator of that as in passing is yeah. i think that's what it's about is that something you're keen to explore more i mean are, are you i think i'm done with it now i mean how many how many films can i possibly um no i think i'm i think i'm probably closing a chapter on on a certain kind of thing for okay. a minute and it's time to look at something else but you know as a filmmaker as an actor i mean both are the same really so I put it under the one category as a filmmaker i'm sure that these themes will crop up again and again and i can't avoid them they're just the themes that i'm interested in like this is the thing i want what i want one day is to go into an HMV should any still exist and one day get the Rebecca Hall deep destabilization box set the gaslighting <laughs> the gaslighting box, box. <laughs> <laughs> featuring all your greatest hits that be that be right all the greatest gaslighting hits <laughs> yeah absolutely and then try and try and buy it only be only be to be told it doesn't exist um, yeah, which, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, 
Um, are you? Are you? What are you working on at the moment? I'm going to let you go in a second. But what are you? What, what's next for you? Uh, well, I just finished the sequel to Godzilla vs Kong. Who wins? Um, um, that you know, that's a privileged information. I can't. I can't. There are no winners. There are no losers. There are. We're all winners. We're all losers. Um. Uh, so there's that, which was really fun, and I loved every second of it actually. And um. And now I've I've written a couple things, and I'm you know in the process of thinking about directing again. On that note, Rebecca Hall, it's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, I'm gonna let you go. Thank you so much for your you your time. Chris, take care. Bye bye. Cheers. Thank you. Okay, so that was Rebecca Hall, and now it's time to delve deep into this week's movie news. Was there any? There, there was some news, and Good. some of it was very upsetting for me personally, and um, because Wonder Woman three is apparently on hold at DC Studios, so some. Hints and rumours, at the very least, um, have emerged about the uh, the P- James Gunn, Peter Safran uh, regime mm. at uh, DC Studios. And the word is that uh, Patty Jenkins' latest treatment for Wonder Woman 3 has been given a no-go status. Um, and that there are plans afoot for major changes in the, in the DC universe. Um, so it's now not clear that Henry Cavill will be back as Superman in a big way. It's not clear that Black Adam will be getting a sequel. Um, Mm. And there are even rumours that uh, Jason Momoa may be in the DC universe, but no longer as Aquaman, but instead as Lobo. What? I mean, he's an excellent Lobo, and I'm here for that. But also, what? This is the the rumour. Given that James Gunn himself directed the final episode of The Peacemaker, season one, in which Jason Momoa spoiler alert everybody <laughs> appears briefly as aquaman i mean look that i'll be honest that one does seem like more of a rumor to me yeah. than some of the rest but these mm-hmm. this is the kind of stuff that's uh, that's coming out at the moment so what? is lobo part i mean obviously i know lobo is part of dc but i always felt that he was like part of a separate like he's part of the dc imprint but was he part of the broader like, like he doesn't really interact with Superman You're on the regular, right? Absolutely asking the wrong person. Okay, sorry. Not only do I not know about that character, but I also don't care. Right? Okay. Clear. Important <laughs> so distinction. It's, uh, a, it's a difficult. He feels because he, he, yeah, he feels slightly disconnected okay. from that. But I'm ill-equipped to say. But yeah, so he's sort of what one of those kind of nineties. I've no idea. Violent kind of. Yeah, I'm. I'm curious. I'm. I'm curious how he fits in. I had a few Lobo comics uh, when I was a teenager, and I think I've had some crossover ones where he does fight with, I don't know, whether it be Batman or whatever else, but I don't know if it was if that was a kind of like a novelty crossover type thing, you know, like Aliens versus Predator versus Archie, uh, or whether or not he just, you know, hangs out in Gotham with his chains and his makeup. My money's on the redhead. Well, Archie. Amazing. Yes, yes, I believe Archie does kill both the alien and the predator. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> this is also uh, hot in the heels of uh, a story this week. I think it was in the Hollywood Reporter that said that Black Adam has not done. It's done pretty well at the box office around the world, but it hasn't. Made, it was very expensive. It's very expensive, and yeah. basically, it's not going to. It's going to not break even. It's going to lose money at least theatrically, mm. uh, and then that prompted the Rock himself to break open the spreadsheets and do a four-hour PowerPoint presentation where he said, "Aha! Actually, screw you. It's going to make <laughs> was it between fifty to seventy-five million dollar profit." Yeah, you know, it doesn't seem to be the reason why studios get into the uh, the game for this. They don't want to make just that amount of profit, although that could make uh, a double jeopardy. If you ask me, well, and if you can make a double jeopardy, you make a double jeopardy. If you can make a U.S. Marshals, you make a U.S. Marshals. That's what I say. That's my motto. That's why I should be running the studios. 
But, you know, hey-ho, no one ever asks me my opinion on these things. But, uh, yeah, it does seem to be very interesting over there at mm. DC, the, the, the push and pull between what James Gunn and Peter Safran want to do and what, what went before. I'm not so sure that's going to work necessarily, even though, weirdly, James Gunn was part of what went before. Yeah, but also it's, outside it. it's a particular shame, I think, for Wonder Woman because, okay, yes, Wonder Woman 1984 was not all that I hoped and dreamed. Dreadful. <laughs> tomato, tomato. Okay. Um, you say not all I hoped and dreamed. I say dreadful. You say not all I hoped and dreamed. I say dreadful. <laughs> it doesn't quite run. Right. Let's call the whole thing off. Yeah. But but look, I mean. Neither was Thor The Dark World. Neither was Iron Man. Hey, 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 hey. I'm just saying, we liked it. You and I liked it, but the world as a whole has spoken. The world as a whole can go fuck itself. Okay. My point being, men don't get their whole system tossed aside for one underperforming film, especially in the middle of a pandemic. I also feel she wouldn't have repeated that mistake. It feels like that was a very particular tonal choice. But suddenly all of her projects seem to have vanished. Mm. And that is not great, Hollywood. That's not great. And again, like, it, it doesn't happen to the white men. Still, it doesn't happen to the white men in the same way. So it is it is very concerning to me that as far as I know, Patty Jenkins has no big movie on her slate right now. Um, and, and yeah, Wonder Woman 3 going away is not great for female representation in the DC universe, frankly, you know, and you can lobo all you like, but I want some women in there too, please. And thank you. He did say Harley Quinn's coming back. I, that's nice. (laughs) (laughs) You got to find someone she does care about. Sooner or later, we'll get to someone you do care about. Um, yeah, well, I love Wonder Woman. I did not love Wonder Woman 1984, so, uh, but I'm, I'm a bit on the fence about this. But, mm. you know, hey-ho, we shall see what happens. We shall see what happens. Mm. There's not a lot of news. Hollywood is in that sort of post-Thanksgiving, pre-Christmas lull where mm. not a lot is being released to the trades. Not a lot's being announced at this point in time, but something that is being announced, and I can see why they announced it, because the film has now been scheduled to come out next to December, so they better get a move on, is that Ghostbusters Afterlife has got a, well, an afterlife in the form of a sequel that we, I guess, assumed initially would be directed by Jason Reitman, who, of course, directed Ghostbusters Afterlife and, of course, is the son of the late Ivan Reitman. Uh, but perhaps the passing of his father has made him want to take a, a step back from this one in terms of directing. And he's passed the torch, mm. which, of course, was what Ghostbusters Afterlife was very much about, <laughs> to his co-writer on that film and his friend and the director of Monster House, Gil Kennan, which is very, very interesting indeed. Yeah, I am a huge Monster House fan. It's one of my favorite sort mm-hmm. of Halloween movies. I think it's a great Halloween movie. Um, and... Uh, uh, and so I love that. I also, he did a Christmas movie last year. I, t- I spoke to him for that, for Bah Humbug, uh, A Boy Called Christmas, which is really charming. He did, based which, on the Matt Haig Exactly. Book. Yep. Book, and uh, involved a lot of like work with CG and everything like that, which obviously he was, is how he started off his life anyway. So I feel like this is um, this is a pretty good match of, of you know, writer, director and subject. It's somebody who's al- already knows all these characters, who's already worked on this branch of the franchise, um, who seems to have a real understanding of what this should be. And who has kind of proven, you know, form in the genre. I'm here for it. Mm-hmm. Jimbo, you excited about this? I am pleased. I enjoyed the film a lot. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that it is having a life after death. 
or a life after afterlife or whatever one calls that uh, yeah what is that an after afterlife an after afterlife yeah. uh, that's like an after 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 party but an after 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 light light <laughs> life yes so it seems like apparently all the gang are going to be back for this one and by which I mean the gang from Ghostbusters Afterlife I don't think we can expect too much in the way of original Ghostbusters cameos in this one although Ernie Hudson mm. it was set up at the last you know spoilers for Ghostbusters Afterlife yeah. but it was established in that movie that Winston Sedmore is now insanely rich and is basically now bankrolling the Ghostbusters and the end of that movie was Ecto-1 moving back to New York and mm-hmm. back to the firehouse um, uh, which I visited on that very very same New York trip I was talking about where we went to see Darlene Love and it was closed No, it was fucking closed no. so then I went back Two years after that, when I was in New York, the last time I was in New York, just before the world shut down, when I was doing the, the junket for No Time to Die, and I had a day off, and I said, you know what? I am going to go to that fucking firehouse. And I went to, uh, it's Hook and Ladder 8, I believe, in New York, and it was open, and I got myself a Ghostbusters 2 t-shirt. So Glorious. there you go. Wow. Glory be, glory be, and now it's going to be home once again to the Ghostbusters. But despite that, despite the fact that the the main characters from Ghostbusters Afterlife were left behind in the small town in which that film takes place and yes I know the name of the small town shut up uh, The uh, those characters so McKenna Grace as Phoebe Finn Wolfhard as Trevor Carrie Coon as Callie their mum and Paul Rudd as Mr. Gruberson their teacher they will apparently all be back as well for this so how they're going to weave them into a New York set tale I don't know but you know once again I don't run the studios anything else we should be excited about? Well, there were a lot of new trailers this week. There were. Um, and I, I don't particularly love talking about trailers in an audio format, <laughs> but I would denu- genuinely recommend that you go and look at the trailer for Megan, uh, <laughs> for The Pale Blue Eye. Yes. Um, also for You People. Um, what do you mean, You People? Exactly. Um, <laughs> the Champions, um, you know, they're all basically out there. So. More crucially, though, the full trailer for The Last of Us HBO TV show. Ah, which yes. is magnificent. Let me guess, Jimbo. Every conceivable way. Are you talking about that on the Pilot TV podcast? Funny you should say that, mm-hmm. Chris. Yes, indeed. Indeed we are. It is uh, it is the show I am most looking forward to next year. Uh, and the trailer is I mean, exceptional. It looks pretty good, but we've seen Pedro Pascal escort a very important child across a treacherous landscape before. So... I see what you're saying. Why should you be watching this instead of The Mandalorian Season 3? Well, I'm saying that Ellie beats Baby Yoda. There, I've said it. I'm putting it out there. I'm putting it out there. Oh I, will, I, will, I will die on this hill. Yeah. On the bright that's... side, going for this one, they do have the fact that they have Pedro Pascal's face in it. Yeah, so they do like, have Pedro Pascal's face. That is some bonus face. points, I'll be honest. That yeah. is and his little points. beard. Oh, He's looking very swarthy and a little bit like, you know, moody. So, but, Okay, so I've never played the games because I don't have a PlayStation. <laughs> uh, Sonny, if you're listening to this, yes. if you would like to furnish Chris with a PS5, he would be very, very happy. We've tried this before and it hasn't worked. If, you just, if, you're, if you're out there and you're listening to this and you want to furnish me with a PlayStation, and again, I said it last year, it didn't work, but the uh, the uh, uh, Infinity Saga Blu-ray box set, then you know, by all means, oh I will look the other direction. Like, um, <laughs> what's his name in, in The Untouchables? Um, uh, Del Close. I will look the other way, like Del Close in The Untouchables. And when I and I look back, if there's a box set there, then I know we have a deal. <laughs> if not, then what we, we the move deal? on. What are you offering here? The, the immunity. Wow. Okay. Obviously, right, that's what right. I'm offering. Uh, and <laughs> and I I'm, seem to recall you did start playing The Last of Us and you minutes. got to the first difficult part and gave yeah. up. I had a PlayStation... Three, it would have been three, because when it first came out in 2012. 
So I don't have a PlayStation 4. It would have been a PlayStation 3. And then I was given it and I died within 10 minutes and I thought, fuck this. Uh, so I never, I, never, I never played it again. I see, you and then, what I did. I got Ali Plum to just tell me the story. Well, well see, I know the story. Well, and that's one, of my, that's one of my things I'm trying to get onto. I'm trying to tiptoe tip around this. But uh, yeah, so I played it for, for 10 minutes. Thought, okay, this doesn't happen in FIFA. Screw this. <laughs> and then uh, Nick had lent me the, his game and then I lost it. So I never gave it back to him. Wow. Yeah. You're the worst. You are the worst. The That's not the worst. worst. That's it's pretty bad. pretty, pretty bad. The greatest video game ever made, and you lost it. It was a check disc. I mean, it was no Heroes of Karn. <laughs> You're no Heroes of Karn. <laughs> right, yes, because I load a lot quicker. It's no sensible soccer now, is it? No, no, no. But, uh, but uh, okay, so the story, and I'm going to tiptoe around this, yes. but the story continues in The Last of Us 2, which it has does. pretty seismic happenings. Yes. And obviously inspired James to try and learn the guitar, which is incredible. <laughs> which is an ongoing saga. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, knowing what I know about what happens, mm. why should I watch the show? Because it's quote-unquote, looks amazing. Uh, I cannot possibly say anything more than that, other than from the trailer, it looks utterly fabulous. Like they've you, really done it justice. Are you saying that they may not go down the road that the game went down, and maybe there might be surprises down no, the No, well, I mean, look, I, I, I think that's a possibility. I certainly can't speak to how this series is going to end. I do think they, well, I know for a fact they have made certain... I, 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 I couldn't have. <laughs> uh, I... I do know for a fact they've made certain sort of deviations from, shall we say, the canon. But I think the broad, like it's a faithful adaptation of the game where they make some very key changes to fit the new medium, which is obviously a, you know, a serialized television show. And I think they make some very, very smart choices in this. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I, yeah I've, I've spoken to the people involved. I've spoken to Neil Drotman and Craig Mason, who are kind of co-showrunners in this. Uh, and they taught me through a lot of the stuff that they've, mm -hmm. uh, they've done. So yeah, so it, sure, if you've played the game, you know, broadly speaking, how this is going to go. There will be some surprises, but you will know the broad strokes. But they have enhanced it. It's not a video game where part of the experience is, is playing the game. It's all about watching it. So they've adjusted the structure, adjusted the narrative to fit that format. So it's still mm -hmm. a different thing from playing the game. And also the, the, the performances, you know, we're used to seeing Troy Baker as Joel. We're used to seeing Ashley Johnson so as used. Ellie. And these are very different. Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey have very different interpretations of those characters. So yeah, it's a different experience, but it is of a piece. Um, and and it, it and I'm going to say right now, it's going to be the best thing that happens next year. So there you go. Really? Yeah. I'm just going to say that I've already seen the best <laughs> thing that's going to happen next year. I saw it today. I saw it at 10.30. <laughs> He was I've very the, excited when he got to lunch. I've seen the first masterpiece of 2023, folks. It may actually be the only masterpiece of 2023. <laughs> I know it is not The Equalizer 3. I know it is not Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 uh, or John Wick Chapter 4 or any across of those things. Across the Spider-Verse. Yeah, Across the Spider-Verse or Guardians 3. coming out next year. Yeah, uh, you know, or Guardians of the Galaxy 23, Key to Commerce, 1080, Brussels. It's not, it's not that. <laughs> Where uh, Drax peels I, a potato for 25 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> I, uh, I I don't think I'm at liberty to to discuss the identity of this film, uh, but but trust me, there's a, a real fun one coming your way in the next few weeks. Some sad news this week: we lost Mr. Savick. Mr. Savick has passed, uh, aka, of course, Kirsty Alley, at the age of 71, following a battle with cancer. Uh, Kirsty Alley, of course, you know, I, I, when I say Mr. Savick, I mean because she played Savick the Falcon. Mm -hmm. uh, he has a really wonderful relationship with Spock in Star Trek 2. 
The Wrath of Khan, one of our collective favourite films here. Uh, she was lowballed apparently, uh, to return for Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, which is why she was recast for that movie and why Mr. Savick plays a diminished role in Star Trek III. And then just kind of fucks off in terms of that franchise, which is I always felt was a real shame. And then, of course, Kirstie Alley went on to bigger and better things, you know, starred in many, many episodes of Cheers as a replacement for Shelley Long as Diane. And she starred in the Look Who's Talking trilogy and, you know, had a, had a decent movie career going uh, as well. Exactly. I think, you know, Savick alone, Lieutenant Savick, was um, a great, great Star Wars character and a great, great to see a significant Vulcan character other than Spock, which was actually a pretty mm. rare thing mm. in original Star Star Trek. So so she had a great, great relationship with him and really good, um, fun chemistry without sort of stepping outside the bounds of Vulcanism. Um, I think I probably first saw her part in that and then in, in Cheers as Rebecca, um, where... Because she, I saw her first in Cheers and then came to Diane later. Yes. Right? So I, the whole Sam and Diane thing was like a closed book to me for, for ages. Exactly until, the same. Because I was like, exactly Sam and Rebecca, same. isn't it? Mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, I know. And Sam I always Rebecca. preferred her. And now, obviously, looking back mm-hmm. on it, I realized that the Diane years were the golden era for that show. For the show. But, yeah. nevertheless. Rebecca was good. She was good. Yeah, she gets a bum rap. She, she, she made some great stuff. Indeed. It's Kirstie Alley, who passed away this week at the age of 71. All right, time for our penultimate guest this week. This is a big old podcast this week, folks. We're 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 being very bountiful uh, in the run up to Christmas, or I've overbooked one of the two. Um, but you know, this is the thing: you say yes to a whole bunch of guests, thinking that they won't all happen at the same time, and then they all happen at the same time. It's fine. It's fine. It's okay. So anyway, I'm delighted to have this guy return to the Empire Podcast. It is Antoine Fuqua. Every time he appears on the Empire Podcast, uh, we have an absolute blast. And uh, and weirdly, despite the fact that this week's film, Emancipation, is an intensely serious and seriously intense tale of one man's desperate and blood-soaked bid for freedom, starring Will Smith, as a slave in Louisiana who escapes and is pursued relentlessly by the ruthless Ben Foster as a result. Uh, this is a really, really seriously grim and bleak and immersive thriller. But despite that, um, the following interview has a fair amount of chuckles in it. As uh, I talked to Antoine Foucault about how difficult it was to make the film, obviously we talk about to an extent, about what happened with Will Smith at the Oscars, which for a while jeopardised the release of this film. You know, For a while it looked like this film may be pushed back to next year uh, once the dust settled. But the dust settled, I think, on the Will Smith-Chris Rock thing a little bit quicker than people were perhaps expecting. And lo and behold, here it is about to hit on Apple TV+. So we talked about that, we talked about a whole bunch of stuff, and yes, of course, because it's me, we talked a little bit about The Equalizer 3. Of course. The greatest film ever made. I feel very confident in that assertion. Wow. You and no one else. <laughs> I feel like even Denzel Washington and Antoine Fuqua are like, I mean, Chris, dial it back a bit. Yeah, John Wick was better. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, all right, here we go. Antoine Fuqua, enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Emperor podcast by the director of Emancipation, Mr. Antoine Fuqua. Welcome back, sir. How are you? I'm well, Chris. Good to see you again, buddy. Good to see you, sir. Uh, and yeah, congratulations on the film. I, I was just saying to you off mic there that you know it's just it's such an incredibly powerful experience. It is visceral and immersive. And when this material first came your way, 
you're someone who hasn't shied away over the years from visceral and immersive. Was that was that something that immediately you connected with? Yeah, absolutely. I connected with it right away. Um, it was a different feeling this time, Chris. Obviously, because it's so deeply personal, mm-hmm. the subject matter, and uh, it hit me a little different this time. And I, I think uh, it reminded me of why I wanted to make movies to begin with and, and the power of cinema. And it was great writing by Bill Coolidge, the writer. And uh, I saw Peter, uh, I saw the faith and the strength and the possibility of making a film that might have some impact and, and also be very relatable today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so th- th- this is clearly something that you were, you know, the, the, the story of, 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 with Peter to give him the the, the name that you know, people have ascribed to him over the years, and this photograph, this incredibly famous photograph, this is clearly something that you were aware of. But was it was it a story that you were itching to tell, or was it something that just that just happened to to come your way? No, really, it just happened to come my way through my agent uh, Scott Greenberg. I mm-hmm. uh, this I didn't know much about the the picture of Peter. You know, obviously, we all. Slavery is, is is well known, and the whipping and the horrific uh, things that happened. So it was just another image to me of that horrific time. I didn't know any anything about Peter. Uh, there was a diary that was done that he he dictated to uh, someone that wrote it at the uh, Union camp because mm-hmm. he was obviously illiterate in that time. Uh, he couldn't couldn't read or write. Mm-hmm. It was against the law, but he told the story to to someone and. Uh, it was just fascinating. When I read the story, I said, this guy, this guy, he said he was whipped. He was in a coma for three months. And during that time, he saw God. And that for him, his mind and spirit were free. He was not in bondage anymore. So he had no more fear. Yeah. He had total faith in God. So I really latched on to that. I really felt connected to that. And the idea of family, right? The idea of love, the idea of you know, perseverance through institutional racism by putting faith and love first, right? That that's what drove me to want to tell the story. Um, but I didn't know much about Peter until then, uh, until I, I read Bill, the writer, gave me a bunch of research that he had done ahead of time, and that's the part that stuck out to me that he went through this hell. And when I finished reading it, I felt inspired in a weird way. Mm. And I thought that's Peter's journey because here we are today telling a story about a a man, an unknown man, really, because they get his name wrong sometimes. Gordon, sometimes yeah. Peter, not much known about him. And here we are about to tell a story about him that Will Smith signs up to do, I sign up to do, Apple signs, uh, you know, signs on to spend a lot of money to make. I said this this man's journey in life, his purpose was to inspire, and that's sort of the the vision I've always had of Peter. One still frame inspired us to make this movie. And we're talking about it today. And and did that still frame, did that inform everything about the film? And I love what you and, and, and Robert Richardson have done with the movie visually. So yeah. was that something that you decided to do right from the off, you know, to, to bleed the film of colour? You know, there is colour, there's little hints there's little yeah. hints of reds, little hints of green, you know, from time to time. But by and large, this is—I guess you could call it a black and white movie. Did that all? Did that all stem from that image, that you know, that initial image? Yes and no, because it's when I first spoke to Bob, 
Bob asked me how I saw the film, and I said, brutal and, brutal and beautiful. But I said, but when, the, when you really read these stories and you really think about slavery, it doesn't sound like it's this planet. No. It doesn't. It feels so alien in a weird way, yeah? And so I said, it should feel like you're on another planet. And as we went scouting, and we, Bob would take photos, and Rob uh, and uh, Rob Legato, uh, my second unit guy and visual effects guy, we would go out and, and scout, and we would take pictures all over the place. First, we were in Georgia, and then we moved the movie, obviously, to Louisiana mm -hmm. because of voter suppression. And these images started coming, and I kept looking at these images with Bob, and we put together a montage of images, and it felt like that was the truth. The black and white, but letting some of the color bleed in a little here and there, little greens, little reds, you know, it, it, it was like an alien planet, but Earth. And there was something about that idea that just stuck. And then when you look back at his photo, because what I was going to, I had an, at one point, I, I, we, we designed this actually. I was going to do a shot where we would zoom over these mountains and caves and canyons and pull back and realize you're on Peter's back. We actually oh, designed oh. that. And when I did that, I was like, I'm like on another planet. The, the, the scars in the kilo is so deep. It's so horrific. When I did that, and me and Bob talked about that and, we, and I showed Will, it kind of all came together. I was like, it, this is like another planet. Yeah, that's audacious. Uh, that is, that's wild. And then you yeah. also have, you also have, of course, you know, the, 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 you know we talked about immersion uh, early on. You know, you have the swamp and the swamp feels so dangerous and alien. And, you know, you know there's, it's not just Ben Foster and, and his gang who are trying to kill Peter. There's, there's everything that's trying to kill Peter. I mean, that, sure. everything. Uh, yeah, everything. Yeah, <laughs> alligators, alligators, alligators wolf spiders. One day I was standing by a tree and I turned around and there's a wolf spider, the biggest my hand. And, it, it, you know, you're constantly reminded as a human being, like, we don't belong out here at all. <laughs> the, the, the heat was over 100 degrees, had a hurricane, Chris, had a tornado, had lightning strikes. It just kept going. It was at the height of COVID. And I just kept thinking. Oh my God, man! I'll never finish this movie. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was tough. If the hurricane doesn't get you, the wolf spider will. Oh man, it was just ants. I mean, it's just everything you can imagine. Just the branches. You know, you're walking and you step. You know, there's these what they call the knees in the swamp. So as you walk out, it looks like an alien planet. You get all these knees from the swamp sticking out, and as you're walking through the swamps in your boots, and you step on one, and your leg, your feet just go. And it's just nowhere to stand, you know, and they have the uh, the uh, the snakes, obviously, oh. you know, so yeah. you're dealing with that. So every everywhere you turn, it was just dangerous, man. You know, in retrospect, I don't know. You got to be a little crazy to do it. You know, you got to be driven to do something like that. I'm, I'm, I read an interview with you in, in Vanity Fair where you talked about how, you know, you first talked to Bob Richardson about coming on this movie. He was like, you know, I don't want to be I don't want to see any snakes. exact words was I, I literally. Down on the phone with Bobby goes, Anton, do not fucking get me eaten by an alligator or fucking bitten by snakes. And Bob has nightmares about fucking snakes. That's the first thing out of his mouth, man. He was just like cursing out. Do not fucking get if you fucking get me bit, I'm gonna fucking kill you. He was just going on. Then he goes, Okay, how do you see the movie? <laughs> 
that was how me and Bob's first conversation started. And I just thought, I love this guy. This guy's fucking, he was, hey, he was honest though. That is honest. I, I yeah. tell you what, I mean, I'm, I share, I share, I have dreams by snakes as well. I, I'm terrified of snakes. Okay. I, I have dreams, Antoine, about I go to a hotel and the hotel is just swarming with snakes and it's a recurring um, dream. And I, you I, wouldn't have been, you wouldn't have done well down there with us. No, I would not have done well. Will, Will, Will had so much fun with me because Will's like, Antoine, you're one of the toughest guys I know, right? We joke around. When there's bugs and stuff around, he just cried. He said, you just freak out, just lose your fucking mind. And it's true, you know, because, uh, you know, I'm standing there, I'm like, Will, we're going to do this shot. It's going to be like this. Da-da. And a fucking bug or something would hit my neck and I would just lose my shit. What the fuck is that? You know what I mean? Because you don't know what it is, you know? And it, it was just like, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't pretty. That is wild. <laughs> uh, what about Will? Is he, is, he, is he okay with snakes and bugs and gators and stuff like that? Not at all. But I, to his credit, to his credit, yeah, one of the first uh, swamp scenes I shot with Will was there's a shot where he comes down the hill and he has to go across the swamp. Hmm. And there's alligators in the swamp. And I got all my buddies with me, my Navy SEAL buddies, and they're all out and around. And we got, you know, all our tech, Jeff Dash, my stunt coordinator, we're all out there, you know. And uh, we had a bet going, me and Bob Richardson, and Bob's going, there's no fucking way he's running in this water. There's no fucking way. And I said, Bob. Will's, Will's going to run in this water. He goes, there's no fucking way. You're going to do face replacement. I guarantee you. He said, you want to do one shot coming down on his face, going through the swamp, fucking alligators out there? No fucking way. Will comes down. It's a true story. And he comes down and he says, uh, and we got a bet. And then he says, uh, all right, what do you want me to do? I said, I need you to run down this hill. Camera's here. You're going to come down to a bit close up, hand with you, and you're going right into the swamp all the way to the other side. And Will looked at me, and I thought he was going to like, are you fucking out of your mind? And he goes, okay, man, this is what I do. Come on, let's do it. And I turned to Bob. I was like, yeah, he's all the way in. That's that amazing. was the beginning. That's how I knew. I said, Will is all the way in. And he did it about three or four times. And the shots in the movie, and he goes all the way across the water. And you, there's shots of alligators. And he did it three or four times. That is, that's wild. That's wild. I mean, Will, Will is tremendous in the film. Amazing, man. He was amazing. He was, he disappears in this movie and was just incredible. Yeah. You couldn't make this movie. It had to be Will. The sheer pressure that the, the production was under with all the things we just talked about, outdoor adventure, of course, you know, and you need a partner that Will comes to the set every day positive. He, he comes to the sets even playing this character to make people smile or make people laugh or go around, we had to stop him from shaking everybody's hand because it was in the height of COVID. Will would go around hugging people and shaking like, like, the, like the president. And I was like, Will, you cannot do that on this movie. This is not that movie, man. And he would go around and shake everybody's hands. And so, so when he couldn't do that, what he would do, because we're in the heat over 100 degrees every day, he started bringing money to the extras that were like in the shallow grades. And he would start, he had his guys give him money. Wow. So you have to have a partner like that, that people want to go far and beyond for. Um, well, well, obviously, there, there's, there's, there's something surrounding this movie that you know, I don't want to get into too much, you know, because obviously it's been relitigated and relitigated countless times since, you know, since the Oscars last year. But was there a moment whenever, after, whatever hap- after what happened at the Oscars uh, early on in the year, was there a moment when you were worried this movie might not come out this year? I think it's a testament to the power of the movie that it is 
coming out now. But was it worry for you? Yeah, it definitely was. Um, just the world we live in, you know. Um, I was worried about it, and uh, so many people worked so hard on this movie, Chris. Really, man. And like I said, there were people after the hurricane hit Louisiana. I mean, remember we moved the movie from Georgia mm-hmm. for voter suppression. Yep. And we moved to Louisiana. And all those people, hardworking people there, a lot of them were homeless when the hurricane hit. And we got shut down for a month. And my, all my locations were wiped out. I had to redo everything, right? The thing I thought about the most was the crew that worked so hard and the people that gave all their time and, and uh, their art and their work and their craft to this film. And this film was supposed to last, I think, three months. We were supposed to shoot for three, three and a half months. We shot seven. It wow. went that long, all the way into January because of all the different COVID. I had to shut down every day for my entire crew to be tested before they can get out of a car. So the sun is doing this. Me and Bob are literally standing there looking at each other and it's doing this. And I'm freaking out. And it's just going down, right? Then like, 100 something degrees, Apple had to bring in ice jackets. And we had to stop, mandatory, which was good. 30 minutes a day or more, depending on the heat level, so people could cool off and get water and, you know, be safe. You know, heat strokes. I can go on and on and on. It was really tough. Um, And you think about all those people, and you don't want their work to be unnoticed or not recognized, or, you know, you want the film to come out. People worked hard on this film, you know. Um, So it was not just me and Will that worked on the movie. It was all the craftsmen. It's just, you know. Everybody, mm. people who sacrifice not being home, uh, people who didn't have a home to make this film. So, yeah, there was a time. But then it took me back to when I first read the script. On the top of the script, I wrote Sacred Motivation. Right. And I had to go back to remind myself when I read the script, I thought this is going to be so hard. Just the subject matter alone was going to take a lot out of me every day and yeah. will. And everyone, and Apple had we had therapists on the set. We had uh, priests. It, it took a lot every day to deal with the subject matter, but then all the elements, all the things that happen in nature, you can't control or, or foresee coming, or anything in life you can't see coming. It just affects your movie. And I had to go back to that statement and thought, this is going to work out somehow. Sacred motivation, right? You ha- it's a, this is something sacred, right? The love is sacred, faith is sacred, family is sacred. And that's what the movie's about. So I had to put my fears uh, aside and just have faith that we would one day get the film out, right? I don't know how or when. And Apple was always behind us, you know? Moving this movie from Georgia to Louisiana was costly. That's, yeah, that's a, that's a big one. But that was such an important statement. Yeah, absolutely. And Apple never blinked. Yeah. And so I had faith knowing that they did that. When, when I, I just called Will, and Will said, I'm in. Called Apple. We had big conversations about it. Went all the way up the ladder. And it came back, let's do it. I knew that I had a team, and we had, um, uh, we had a group of people that care about something bigger than just, you know, um, one action. 
Absolutely. And, uh, well, Antoine, I've got to let you go in a second, but uh, regular listeners to this podcast will know that I am hugely excited about the Equalizer 3. I am constantly talking about how excited I am about that movie. Man on Fire reunion, yes, please. Um, Are you still shooting it? I mean, can you give us a quick update on on that? I'm still filming, yeah. I was all of the Amalfi Coast, and then I just came from Naples, and now we're back in Rome, and I'm headed back there right after this. Can you uh, can you can you promise me one thing? Is there a line as cool as the line in Equalizer Two, where Denzel says, "The mistake you made is that you killed my friend, so I'm going to kill each and every one of you." And the only disappointment in it for me is that I only get to do it once. I think there is. Yeah, yeah you're gonna see. I think there is. I think there is. That's a that's a high bar, my friend. That's a high bar. There's one. There's one in the restaurant, and then when you see it, we'll talk again. You go. You let me know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tremendously excited. Tremendously excited. Uh, well, congratulations on this, and future congratulations to Equalizer Three. You're going to smash out the park, Anton Fuqua. It is always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much indeed for your time. Be well, man. I'll see you soon. God Be well. well. Take care. All right, so that was Antoine Fuqua, and now let's delve deep into the review section of the show, the, the part of the show that talks about the films that are out this week in the multiplex and on the sofaplex. And we're going to start with Emancipation, which is very much a sofaplex movie. You can watch this on Apple TV+. And so this is the big one, Helen. Lots of people are going to have their eyes on this. Will Smith returning to the fray. How is this movie for you? I find this a really odd one because it feels at times like it's a sort of awards baity 12 years a slave wannabe and then other times it feels like it wants to be a sort of an action film a propulsive you know genuinely quite terrifying thriller where a man is all alone in a swamp on the run uh injured hurt scared underfed and attempting to uh, you know outrun uh, and hide from hunters who are relentlessly pursuing him. So Will Smith obviously uh, plays, uh, he's called Peter in the film, I think he was Gordon in real life. Um, There's varying reports. Yes, um, who is uh, who was a Haitian-born man who was sold into slavery. He is um, taken or sold to the Confederate forces in the middle of the US Civil War and uh, forced to work on a real railroad. He's basically being forced to help the Confederate war effort to keep him enslaved. But in this camp, he hears about the Emancipation Proclamation. He hears that Lincoln has announced that he will free, uh, that all the slaves in the rebelling states are now free. And so he decides to make a break for it. Um, so he, he, he runs. And it is kind of a chase movie for most of the running time. He's running through these swamps, trying to get away with, with um, Ben Foster's Fazzle, um, trying to track him down. I, I just find it a very strange film. It's the, the, the color is almost completely desaturated. Like yeah. it could almost have been black and white because ninety percent of the time, mm. all you can see are shades of grey. And then you'll see like a blade of grass. And go, oh, a bit of color. You'll see, and it's weird. It's it's it tends to be greenery shows up, and occasionally like maybe a flame yeah. or a little bit of blood at one point as well. And I was trying to figure out a long time when I was watching this, like, is this being used very purposefully? Is this, you know, is green associated with freedom? You know, when we see somebody thinking about freedom or running for freedom, is that when we see the green? Is there a purpose to this color? And as far as I can tell, like, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. Mm. I, I couldn't find any such purpose, either emotionally or narratively, that explained quite what was going on. So I find that very confusing, quite distracting. Um, 
Will Smith's accent, I also, I'll be honest, find distracting. I think if people have seen Concussion, they will probably have a, a violent a reaction to Will Smith doing any kind of accent. Um, and it's not that it's bad, it's just that he's one of those actors where we know what he sounds like and it is almost distracting for him not to sound that way. And I'm not saying he always has to be sort of the fresh prince, but you know, because he can do very, very serious roles and has done so brilliantly. But I just find it, I find it quite distracting and quite distancing. So I, I just, ultimately, I guess, I don't know what this film adds to our understanding. And I, yeah. I didn't feel like, you know, in, in a way, I came out of 12 Years a Slave deeply moved, deeply, uh, freshly outraged, if you like, by slavery. And, and, and in this one, yes, awful things happen and, and they are horrifying and appalling and grotesque and brutal. But I didn't, I didn't feel them in the same way. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. This it's a really odd, which is kind of three films in one, isn't it? Like, so you've got this sort of first act, which is the, that sort of classic slavery imagery, where it's just almost like torture porn. Like, it's just it's just misery heaped upon misery, degradation, cruelty, people throwing racial slurs around left, right, and centre. It's dehumanising and it's horrible. And then you go into this chase movie where Will Smith is being pursued through the swamps by. Ben Foster as a kind of racist Terminator, just like charging after him, like he will not stop trying to kill him, and and it drags a bit. If I'm honest with you, that middle bit it's quite boring because it's not really affecting or moving, and it's not particularly exciting. There's a lot of hiding in bulrushes and things. There's it, not really a lot happening, and then you have the third act, which involves the Union Army, and I think that's when it starts to get interesting, both from a narrative point of view and also from a visual point of view. Like that's where most of the spectacle is. But a lot of this, as you say, like it, it's not all that entertaining as a a sort of like a, an action thriller, which it tries to be in places, and it doesn't really have the weight to be, you know, a moving sort of slavery-centric drama. So you're left kind of wondering why this film exists. And I think, you know, for all Will Smith may not be showering himself in glory recently, this is an incredible performance for him. I didn't find the, the accent uh, oh, okay. myself yeah, and I thought he like if it weren't for his performance I would have been on Twitter <laughs> through most of the film but he kept me glued to the screen because I thought he, he delivered an incredibly incredibly powerful performance uh, there are a couple of moments in particular uh, which really really like he just duh, 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 whether it be sort of fury grief the injustice of it or you feel the weight of that and I think he conveys that beautifully so I did think he was very very good in this as well Ben Foster obviously <laughs> playing evil Ben Foster is kind of like I would say he's on autopilot he's not he's actually very good but we're so used to seeing Ben Foster as just Captain Evil all the time that I felt like I've seen this before um, but like I say you know it, it, you know, there's money on screen there are set pieces there are visuals the, the, the thing you talk about with the desaturation is an odd choice I couldn't fathom a reason for it it just made the whole film feel a bit drab to me I'm not quite sure I'd about you know do it in black and white do it in colour fucking pick one like I don't know maybe there was a reason for this and I'm sure Antoine Fuqua could justify it and I'm sure then it maybe would all make sense to me but i just i didn't really think it added anything to the film so yes is, is it bad no but is it great also no yeah all right three stars three stars three stars and yeah i yeah obviously it's not it's a film is not meant to be enjoyed in the traditional sense but i did admire it i thought you know it's incredible level of craft here robert richardson one of the best dps in the business on the old <laughs> on the old camera tron <laughs> You, As it is known. you got to love that. Uh, and I thought Will Smith was fantastic. 
but it is an intense, unrelenting film that you are mm. in that swamp with with Peter. And I, I found all that, that all, all those aspects. I, I thought it was actually, you know, uh, um, that was interesting. It felt different because of that, because we were with him as he was trying to escape, um, and you know, we were by his side as he's being assailed from all sides by, if it's not Ben Foster, it's a bloody alligator. If it's not an alligator, it's a snake. If it's not a snake, it's something else. Mm. It's one damn thing after another, which is what our next movie perhaps should have been called as well, as you heard me say to Rebecca Hall, that Resurrection might as well just been called Bloody Hell, the movie, or one damn thing after another, the movie. Uh, but first, three stars for Emancipation, which is on Apple TV+. Plus. Resurrection, as I mentioned already, is on digital this week. Jimbo, bloody hell. Yes, indeed. Uh, this is a film written and directed by Andrew Siemens, and this was on the blacklist for some time before it got made. Uh, and it is bat shit insane. So this one stars Rebecca Hall as Margaret, and Margaret is uh, very leaves a very ordered life. She's very confident at her profession. She's got her shit together. She's got a guy on the side. She keeps him at a distance, but she has everything she wants from life in exactly the place she wants it. She's a single parent to a daughter who she's a little overprotective of, but seems very close to, has a loving relationship with. And then she spots someone at a conference, a kind of a man from her past, played by Tim Roth. Tim uh, Roth. Loves Tim a bit Roth. Broth. Loves a bit broth. In this case, loves all sorts of things. And then things start to, shall we say, unravel. It turns out that she had a relationship with him in the past, and it was a very abusive, controlling relationship, like quite horrifically so, in fact. Uh, and then things happen, uh, and nothing you maybe expect will happen, because it all goes a little bit off the rails. But I mean that in the best possible way. Like I, I don't want to say anything about this plot, because it's absolutely deranged, but it's also genius, and it's audacious, and it's it's it kind of blurs the line between what is and isn't real and what you mm. do or do not expect mm -hmm. to be happening in any given scene. And mm -hmm. characters do things that make no sense, but it's not bad screenwriting. It's a deliberate, heightened choice. And Rebecca Hall is outstanding. She is. This. And there is a point where she delivers about a 10-minute monologue mm -hmm. about her, mm -hmm. her previous experiences with her abusive partner. And that is an acting masterclass in and of mm -hmm. itself. It's mm -hmm. fantastic. Um, it's probably quite triggering, I would have thought, this film to a, mm -hmm. to a number of people. But it's, Emancipation is as well, I'm Well, guessing. yeah, absolutely. It's quite weak. But it's also just nuts. And I, I swear to God, if you think you know where this film is going, I promise you, no, hand you, on you heart, don't. you have you don't. no clue. No where this film is going I think it's uh, really if you do congratulations yeah well then you're you're very twisted I'd also like next week's lottery help. numbers yeah exactly <laughs> but I don't know this definitely won't be for everyone uh, but it, 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 <laughs> but you know I honestly think just watch it anyway because it's just mad I I think it's a great sadness that this is one of those movies that because it's being released here digitally only on Shudder yeah yeah it's going it's going to be overlooked yeah, it'll be missed big by time people. yeah and this is a great performance and you know i think you as i said to rebecca hall in the interview like you know you know within the the credit sequence that this is a director who's in complete control it's just it's very bold and audacious and you know it's it's one of the I, i'd put it you know rebecca hall quibbled slightly with it being called a horror and i can maybe see it's why it's like a psychological thriller mm, yeah isn't it? but you know potato potato 
but it, it just feels to me like this is this is one of the the, mm. the best crop of the elevated horrors. I see. It's funny. Like you see, I know I know exactly what she means. Like I don't think it, it, like it is horrific at times. It's not scary in the sense that you feel afraid watching it. What it gives you is that sense of creeping dread and horror at what people are capable of mm. because it's an abusive relationship and because there's a real cold manipulative calculation to it it's quite upsetting Mm -hmm. and i think that's the horror of it it's not scary in that regard it's scary in the sort of that kind of almost existential way Mm -hmm. um but yeah difficult the horror of it is that we don't have an official empire review yet uh but i think you can tell that jimbo and i are both firmly in the four star camp in this one so we would recommend that you go and see resurrection and know as little about it as possible next up it's the return of Guillermo del Toro uh, as director. But hang on, didn't he just have a film out? Well, basically this year, because Nightmare Alley opened in the UK this year. He's very prolific, is old GDT. And he's back with um, a stop motion movie that he must have whipped up in no time at all. <laughs> uh, it's Pinocchio. It's Pinocchio. Yeah, two Pinocchios this year, two Guillermo del Toro films. But this is the only crossover. This is by far the best Pinocchio film we've had all mm-hmm. year. And I would put it in contention for the best Pinocchio film Ever. I think this is an astonishing, astonishing film because Guillermo del Toro plus stop motion animation is a glorious, glorious match. And uh, and this is a weirder and therefore more wonderful Pinocchio than we've never we've ever had before, I think. It is not for little children. I no, it, it is, is not. It is really quite scary at times, but the basic story is the one you know. Um Geppetto, who's voiced by David Bradley. Uh, is racked with grief still 10 years after the death of his son his sort of his his work and his career has kind of gone to rack and ruin and um and he carves a little boy out of pine which is brought to life by a forest spirit a sort of biblically accurate angel uh that is voiced by Tilda Swinton and um becomes Pinocchio voiced by Gregory Mann um and uh Pinocchio won't really he doesn't really listen and and he's so curious about everything that no matter what Geppetto tells him, he pretty much goes off and does his own thing anyway. So he immediately gets into messy, weird situations, which is a particular problem because this is set in Italy and it is in particular set in fascist Italy. So you have these fascists sort of all around this little family threatening them and and everybody sees something different in Pinocchio that they want whether he's a soldier who can't be killed whether he's you know um a, a sort of new resource for the the the, the army to tap into whether mm. he's a, a great performance piece for the circus owner you know everybody wants a bit of him basically uh, possibly literally and and that becomes obviously a threat to this little family Against that, you have Ewan McGregor as the cricket, as Pinocchio's conscience, um, and the sort of continued stewardship is the wrong word, but the, the, you know, there's a sort of element of the the forest spirit and death itself, her sister, mm-hmm. both mm-hmm. voiced by Tilda Swinton, kind of looking out for him. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, Kate Blanchett is also in this. Yes, and Kate Blanchett voices a monkey. <laughs> I just wanted to say that because I'll be honest, when I was watching it, I, I remembered Kate Blanchett was in it, and I was like, oh, I wonder which of the these angelic beings. Because weirdly enough, Tilda sounds like her. Tilda does sound like her. So Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, maybe one's Tilda and one's Mm -hmm. Kate Blanchett. No, Kate Blanchett is the monkey. I cannot stress this enough. 10 out of 10 casting, Guillermo. That is astonishing work. Is this the best use of Kate Blanchett in a voice role since Hot Fuzz? (laughs) I think it might be. Okay. 
But look, it's magnificent uh, casting across the board. You've got Christoph Waltz, Tim Blake Nelson, Finn Wolfhard, John Turturro, Ron Perlman, of course, mm-hmm, Bernd Gorman. Um, it's it's a beautiful, beautiful cast. It's an astonishing film, and um, and yeah, it is. I I would put it. I would say it's the best Pinocchio ever filmed. Personally, I think it's I think it's wonderful. Yeah, I revisited the Disney Pinocchio recently, and yeah, obviously it's also it's great. Very scary. It's a great mm. yeah, but that's right. But this is this proper taps into the darkness mm. in a way that I probably shouldn't be surprised by. But he doesn't temper it. At all, all. does uh, Del Toro, and it is nightmare fuel. It is absolute nightmare fuel. We should also mention that it's it's co-directed by Mark Gustafsson. Yes, Uh, but yeah, when (laughs) the first time I saw this, I saw thirty-five minutes of footage um, at the LFF, and it just—I was just my mouth was agape the entire time, going, "These are very interesting decisions." I mean, this is—you know—you look at this and you go, "Okay." Sight unseen, tell me who directed this, and you show them a frame of this. <laughs> oh, that's a Guillermo del Toro Pinocchio, isn't yeah. it? Yes, it is. Because this is going to haunt your dreams for the rest of your days. Yeah, I mean, he's always been an anti-fascist. You know, he's always yeah. been fascinated by sort of clockwork things. Mm-hmm. Of course, Pinocchio. Automatons is a big thing for Automata- him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, ju- just the f- just the flex of having biblically accurate angels. So they've got six wings and like mm-hmm. hundreds of eyes. Who who does that? Nobody does that. Guillermo del Toro does that. Yeah, in your face, Vim Vendors. In stop motion. Oh. <laughs> in your face, Vim Vendors. <laughs> the grand face-off between Vim Vendors and I love Vim Game Vendors. Of the and I love Wings yeah. of Desire, but uh, oh, of but course. you know, it's it's this is this is glorious. We've given it four stars. Yes, we I have. would personally add one more. No, I, I agree. I agree with both of you. <laughs> I think it's great, but yeah, I think I'm I'm in the uh, I'm probably in the four. Okay. In the four count, because I think it's just I don't know that the, the uh, it's maybe just a little bit too nightmare fuely. <laughs> Can you know. be too nightmare? Fuel-y? I don't know. I, I was Evil Dead think, Two is your favorite film. I know, but on. that's it's also got funny bits where people chop their hands off and stuff. But this is this has got you know. I was thinking about the age that you would show this to a child, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking 27. <laughs> I, I I would personally probably. Yeah, I might be waiting for teenage years at the very least, I'll be honest. Mm. But, you know, animation does not have to be just for children. So true. that is true. not the point here. Um, Absolutely. And, and I think that is, it, it is, I think it's just wonderful. Absolutely. It. it is great. Four stars then for Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Uh, such a quick remake of the Robert Zemeckis film. <laughs> but that's the thing about stop motion. It's so quick. So quick. It's famously so quick. Famously quick. <laughs> 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 you remember that fast show sketch about the claymation animator? No. And I move it a little bit here. Oh, yes. And I move it a little bit here. And I move it a little bit more. Oh, the fast show. Great stuff. Reviewing senior is very much like making love to a beautiful woman. <laughs> I don't know how, but, <laughs> but then again, I don't know how to make love to a beautiful woman. I mean, that is not also, true. I do make love I to a beautiful woman, but I'm not very good at it. Oh. Okay, well, I'm oversharing this week. (laughs) This is is all very concerning. Um, Seniors on Netflix by Robert Downey Sr. It is about Robert Downey Sr. Yes, this is... I am um, Iron Man's father. Sure, yes. So Robert Downey Sr. uh, was uh, an underground filmmaker uh, in his heyday. And he, he made, I think, starting off with zero budget films and working his way up to very small budget films uh, throughout his career. But he did have, you know, a cult following. He did develop a sort of a fandom. He did develop um, a lot of credibility in Hollywood itself so that Robert Downey Jr. 
who who obviously um is is basically one of the driving forces behind this film, the driving force behind this film, maybe, you know, says in his early days he was known as, you know, Bob's son. That was that was his sort of identity as as a young man in Hollywood. And in fact, his very first performances were in his dad's films. So this is an attempt to you know, to some degree, I guess, eulogize his father while he's still there to be, to be, you know, to discuss things with and to talk about his life and to reveal things that maybe he hadn't revealed before and, and really kind of explain to people why he mattered uh, in a way that people may not be aware of. Because, you know, I think a lot of people are aware of, you know, Robert Downey Jr., the man who is Iron Man and the man who made, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars over his career playing that role um but i think he wanted to kind of correct the record and and give this this um this portrait of his dad as well and it's a it's a beautiful loving thing to do and and their mm. rapport and their relationship which clearly has not always been easy and they they talk very openly about times in their lives where it really was difficult but their rapport now is very very evident in this film and and the the sort of present day stuff as this as this was being shot is really delightful and moving and to see Robert Downey Sr. with his grandchildren and to see them interacting as a family is beautiful. But it's also fascinating when Sr. is given the chance to kind of direct his own account and and sort of goes off and directs things himself and isn't so interested in those moments in talking about his own, his own history, his own achievements, his own work, as he is just looking at the world, which is what his films were really all about, is mm. sort of finding an interesting person passing by and Got going. Oh, look at that! You know, and he's, it's that perennial curiosity that comes across in this portrait. That's a really beautiful thing. All right, sounds great. This is on Netflix right now, and we give this one four stars. Uh, there's a film out this week called The Silent Twins, which I am very, very keen to see. But sadly, I couldn't make the screening this week. Uh, and it stars Letitia Wright and Tamara Lawrence. It's a true life story about two twin sisters who would only communicate with each other, and so this film delves into them, into their story, and into this this world that they built as well. Uh, we gave the film three stars, so hopefully we're going to review it on next week's show. But we do have an interview with the silent twins themselves, Letitia Wright and Tamara Lawrence. Letitia Wright, of course, fairly recently had a very high-profile promotion. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can say that now, can't we? In so. uh, yeah, four weeks in in uh, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, and we sent Amon, Amon Woman, along to speak to Tamara Lawrence and Letitia Wright, and here is that interview. Do please enjoy. Thank you for speaking to me about this film uh, for a story that I did not know about before watching this film. Did either of you two know about it before you were approached to do it? Um, only in really piecemeal. Um like myth and legend, I think I, I probably knew as much as like the average member of the public knew in that there's these mugshots and these twins and they went to Broadmoor and I sort of assumed that they'd uh, uh, killed people or something like that because why else would you be in Broadmoor? And then, um, yeah, so it was the this audition process and reading the book and everything that uh, taught me that actually that was very far from the truth. Yeah, similar for you? Yeah, I saw the documentary that June did years ago and I always was intrigued. Um, really sad, really, every time I finished watching it. But thought it could be a brilliant film for their their narrative to be put out, you know, a little bit more than what the media was doing to them back then. So 
when it came about, I was really grateful to be a part of it. Yeah, beautiful opportunity. So once you then say yes to it and you dive into the research, what sort of stuff were you finding out that really surprised you and that, that you wanted to bring into the film as well? Their personality. Mm. Um, reading the diary entries in the book, you're just like, raw. like their personality is so cool. Um, they're really funny. Like, remember, like, we would have book sessions, myself, Tamara and Aga, um, Agnieszka, our director, and mm. we would just be busting up laughing at the fact that, you know, they would just be writing in their diary entry about their day and how just energetic they were. And, and then and then the flip side of that could be another day where they're just at the just at the beach and their description description of 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 the water and how it it was a symbolism of or or in a way like metaphoric to how the deep emotions and feelings that they were feeling inside you know it just gave us a sense of who they were and how smart they are and I just really appreciated that how do you both typically like to prepare and as you're playing twins in this film did you prepare differently to how you normally would? But uh, typically, I like to prepare from uh, research, reading the the project as much as possible, um, talking to the director and other cast members where possible. Sometimes that's not possible um, mm. uh, because you don't get to really meet people until a certain way in. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think the nature of this piece meant that y- we we had to find. Uh, a, a common way of working, even if we both did, we both did our thing separately. Obviously, because um, there was different types of uh, personality. As- there was different aspects of personalities for the different characters. So, um, yeah, there was a level of kind of separate work we had to do. But I think for the most part, we worked together with our director and together nightly throughout the um, the piece to to figure out how how to make it work, to figure out, um, to come to a set with questions as well. And our director was very open to our suggestions and um, our continual collaboration even after shooting was wrapped as well. Mm. Mm. I'm hearing that when it came to certain decisions like costuming, you asked like, the other is this been approved by tomorrow? Has this been approved by Letitia? Is that is that right? Wow, you did a lot of good research. Um, yes, um, our twinship had a beautiful way of uh, finding its way into our work relationship, and I found that you know the more questions that was being asked of me, um, I didn't want to be in a room without tomorrow. So I was just like. <laughs> does tomorrow approve? And no. if the answer was we haven't spoken to my arms, then there's no point speaking to me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> because it was a collaborative process between the two of us alongside our cast, um, other cast members and crew and our director. So it naturally just became that where we were just, yeah, just champion each other's ideas and collective ideas to make sure that the twins were being represented in the way that we intended. What are the most powerful tools in an actor's arsenal? is their voice. Uh, and for large portions of this film, you're working without that. Can you talk about navigating that challenge? Because that's mm. interesting to me. Yeah, I think uh, silence was such an intrinsic part of this relationship, but also there is something about, well, non-verbal communication is actually the majority of communication. So I mm. think it was interesting to explore um, how to speak to someone without words and how, and to, and and the ways in which like physicality uh, can communicate 
so much more than maybe a sentence could. And that especially when you share DNA, I think that that's heightened to a, another level because there's an understanding of each other's like physiology that the average person doesn't have. And so they they experience like, um, I was going to say telekinesis, but that is not the right word. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it's like moving a, a cup. <laughs> no, no, yeah, no. wow, that's really. <laughs> they didn't know they were not. They were not superiors. But yeah, yeah they, about uh, to join the Marvel universe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no, no. They, um, it, yeah, they often were able to sort of in, interpret or intuit what the other was was feeling. So I think. Uh, um, and, and the diary entry showed us a lot of that. So I think the, the research, the book, the script allowed us to kind of delve in to nonverbal communication and find um, a kinesphere when it came to working together. Mm. Mm. Well, speaking of that, talk about nonverbal communication, your choreographed dancing scene Thank is you. incredible. How long <laughs> did it take you guys to get in sync with that? Because that's not easy to do. Thank you for noticing that. Um, <laughs> Again, like with everything, whether it's accent, whether it's breaking on the script, whether it's movement, we spent a lot of time working on it with Kaya. And it was, yeah, like a beautiful way to show an extension of their creativity and and just like the fascination of that world that they imagined, you know, after doing something in, in the real world. So mm-hmm. after seeing the boys, they're on a high. And the way they describe it in the diary entry is like, like they're just so happy and so ecstatic and we wanted to like use cinema in a way to like like showcase that so um yeah it was cool we we <laughs> learned that i think that was like our last day of filming yeah. okay. and then um yeah we kind of like oddly wrapped like cuz i think uh, it was raining and stuff so we did the choreography and we finished it and then we thought we had like an extra day to do it and then and then yeah, we just wrapped that night. It was it was really cool. <laughs> nice, oh, great job! It's, it's an amazing scene. Thank you. Um, also amazing the stop motion animations throughout the film, which are incredible. And I gather that a lot of that was described in the diaries and all the uh, research that you did. But when you saw it, did did the full thing match what was going on in your, in your head as you imagined mm. this, or was it sort of beyond what you even sort of thought of initially? Yeah, I think we were both really blown away by that aspect because it was something that came in sort of, it was a, an evolution of of uh, the work that Aga was doing in the project. I think she was really um, passionate about the dolls and how these dolls re- represented um, uh, characters that appeared later on in June and Jennifer's stories, but also was a way for them to kind of uh, broaden their world and live outside of the, the walls of of their room so she was like we have to find a way to get the dolls and the stories in and so mm. the motif of of the parrot and bobby and dr pallenberg were all characters that they they wrote about but the way that they used that story to sort of tell the tale of a sacrifice alongside the um the what was happening real time for the the twins i thought was was really magical and yeah beyond beyond anything I could have ever expected. I thought it was like made the film for me. Mm. Yeah. Um, you're also producers on this film, both of you. What made you want to become so involved in this project and what's it like sort of being in those rooms, making those decisions? Uh, well, I know Tish had a different experience because she was, um, you know, she greenlit the project, so she was on from the beginning and involved in uh, casting and stuff like that. 
Um, and then, yeah, when I was cast, Aga was also really open about like wanting me to watch tapes and being like, what do you think? And, you know, have you got any ideas for that and that and that, which I didn't kind of expect anything of but I thought was like really really interesting to watch even watch back my own tape and watch all these things but um yeah so after we wrapped that's that's when I was invited to come on as an exec which was um really really cool and very exciting um and then but yeah it showed me I learned so much about how a film is made a film is made on the editing floor and that um you know, the whole killing your darlings as well. There's so many scenes that we love that nobody will ever see. Mm. And um uh yeah, and 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 just the level of 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 passion and work from every single department that came together um to give so much heart to this story as well. I was really moved in the Polish press junket about hearing the Polish team talk about the amount of work they did over lockdown. Um, the depth of research and the seminars that Aga hosted to kind of she gave every department homework and they had to come and share. Um, and and also I felt very heard and accepted when it, in the producing team as well with all of my feedback and my notes, mm. um, which I really appreciated because, um, yeah, I felt like uh, respected for the, the contribution that we we gave, but also that they understood that there was something that we have an affinity to as as black actresses that that they don't um and were were open to hear that so i think that uh yeah it gave me the producing bug and i think um yeah we both definitely want to straddle both sides of the camera moving forward mm. this is really good stuff i'm finding that you're completely in sync you're playing these twins you research together you prep together this is all good stuff therefore you know each other inside out and therefore it leads me to this <laughs> question tomorrow <laughs> when you are on set making this film did you know what kind of other secrets <laughs> at that time? Did I know who? <laughs> oh, what kind of secrets? Did you know what kind of other secrets um, at that time? Do you know what? Actually, obviously, I need the big one. Uh-huh. But, I um, but no, there was there was much of the plot that um, yeah that she she kept under wraps. I don't know what. In the NDA you signed, but it had you under lock and key for sure. Yeah, no, I definitely didn't know um, the twists and turns in mm. in the story at all, um, and was keeping my mouth shut too until mm. the trailer came out. And then I was like, "Well, <laughs> this is happening, guys." Um, so uh, yeah, it's really fun. It's really um, amazing that that's that's out now because it's obviously. A huge achievement. Thank yeah, you. It really, really is. Letitia, when the movie was released and people started seeing it, how many messages have you gotten in <laughs> recent months? I knew it. I can't believe you didn't tell me. All that sort of stuff. Oh, man. Because... A few. <laughs> a few. A few. A lot of cool messages. Mm. Uh, I think people didn't really expect um, Shuri to kind of go in that direction. I think... It's, it's kind of nice being a little bit underestimated and people mm. don't know which way you're going to go. Like people have seen Silent Twins and they're just like, wow, I never expected that from you. Um, I didn't know like you and Tamara had that that type of, you know, uh, range. And I'm just like, man, we've been we've mm. been grinded. You know, mm-hmm. we, we, we have something within us that, you know, with the right story, it just comes out. And that's the same with like Black Panther, just that opportunity to expand Shuri in a way that people never expected. You know, they, they're really stuck on her being really funny and like charismatic and the cool, fun sister that creates tech. But this one takes you into a deeper dive into into that world. And so I'm just like, yeah, to put that next to, 
you know, silent twins and, and mm. people be like, man, like, you yeah. guys are amazing. Um, it feels good. Mm-hmm. What can I say? I imagine there's a lot of weight attached to that suit for many reasons. Can you talk me through your emotions putting on that suit for the first time and stepping onto set and what the reaction was? Um, it was bittersweet. Um, Shuri, Shuri was always going to do it, um, you know, but it was going to be done in a different way where her brother was going to be alongside her. We explore that, you know, like the comic books, the ways in which T'Challa and Shuri would do the, um, be Black Panther alongside each other and try to figure out how to, um, defend their nation. Um, but unfortunately that's not how it panned out. So it was like, you know, I knew the responsibility and I knew the weight of it, but it was just like bittersweet, um, something I struggled with a lot, um, but extremely proud of myself, um, had great support, you know, uh, did I did spill some beans to tomorrow. <laughs> but like, I put on this suit today. <laughs> it's like sick. So don't tell anyone I sent you those pictures. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll let um, that out. It's fine. We'll let yeah. That out. <laughs> so, so, um, but yeah, like now that we've come to a full circle of the film being out, like I'm just really proud of myself, you know, as a black woman, you know, um, being the first superhero um, uh, that's a black woman in a Marvel Cinematic Universe film um, to do those numbers. Um, History is being made as we sit here and I'm a part of it and that feels surreal. And that door has just been opened up for another black woman to go do that. Um, and then some. So I'm just proud, and 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 I know my brother would be really proud of me too. Mm, yeah, that. I just say I was in the UK premiere audience. Uh, it was cool that you guys came and watched the movie with us. But uh, that moment where Shuri makes her grand introduction and embarks, says the Black Panther lives. I mean, you probably heard me cheering along with the whole movie. But what is it like being in the audience for moments like that? And have you snuck into any other cinemas to experience no, that? No, I'm really, yeah. I'm really nervous about sneaking into cinemas and stuff like that. I really mm-hmm. wish I could, I, I could do it, but because everybody has such a crazy expectations of like who they want it to be and all of this other stuff. Um, I haven't done that. I w- maybe on the next one, maybe. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it feels nice when people are receptive to to the way in which it's it's gone. And I feel if you watch the story and and you understand the the, the plots, you understand why. She had to suit up and kick some bum. She did kick some bum. bum. <laughs> I said bum, not bum. I said bum. She did kick some bum, and it was great to see. And it was also <laughs> great to see this movie, and it's great to see you. Thank uh, you. Letitia Tamara, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Yay. <laughs> Okay, so that was Letitia Wright and Tamara Lawrence. And that is it. Finally, just shake the guest tree. No more guests in the guest tree. My God, what a week. What a week. Uh, But that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun where we'll be joined by... Oh God, I've done it again. I've overbooked again. So we are going to be joined by Alejandro G. Inaritu, whose Bardo hits Netflix next week. He, you, you know him, mm-hmm. big director. Yes. He's directed movies. Uh, who else are we going to be joined by? We're going to be joined by Sean Andrews, whose Christmassy movie Spirited is still available on Apple TV Plus. So you know him. Mm-hmm. He's he's directed movies also. And we're going to have an excerpt of a very special Q and A we did the other night, uh, where uh, we spoke to Jim Cameron, James Cameron, 
live on stage as part of an Empire VIP Club event. Uh, he was in town to promote uh, Ev- Evator? Evator? Evator. Evator, The Way of Water, a sequel to his 2000... <laughs> yes, <laughs> so Weeter, a sequel to his 2009 film Evator. And uh, we're going to have a little excerpt of that, but the main one-hour Q&A with James Cameron is going to be available as a show in its own right, and that will be something just to whet your appetite. But he'll be on the show next week, James Cameron, because next week is Avatar 2 week, folks. So it's going to be very, very interesting indeed. But anyway, until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it's time to say goodbye to my two colleagues of such lethal cunning, James Dyer. Goodbye. Goodbye, James Dyer. You would expect me now to do a plug for the Pilot TV podcast, but I'm not going to do that this week. Why is that, James Dyer? I just thought I'd give you a break. Oh, thank God. Except it's going to be great. Saves my editing fingers. (laughs) (laughs) It's very hot in here also. Uh, I've just been sent sent a little picture, a little video of our daughter at the school thing. So uh, goodbye to Helen so we can watch it. Oh, totally. Yeah, show me, show me. Okay, well, in a second. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to watch this. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye.